recruiters, I find, don't challenge clients enough. They'll just take the job and go, yep, okay, we'll work it contingency at 15, 20% or whatever the rates are. But you're not then differentiating your service. You're not, you're just another recruiter. You're not anything special. You're not going to stick out in that client's mind. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby. My guest today is Katie Howard-Cross. Katie's the co-founder of Eva Connections and has more than 18 years experience in executive recruitment, training and development, and career coaching. She's worked extensively in the energy and heavy engineering sectors, and she's passionate about developing a company culture that supports women rise to the top of their profession. She has worked and operated within international business environments and built multi-million revenue generating divisions from scratch. She's got a very entrepreneurial mindset and is always seeking out and has a talent for spotting creative opportunities from nothing where none previously existed. Katie's a really high level relationship builder. She's built teams across multiple markets and she's helped her teams to win several awards along the way, including best executive search firm at the RBA awards for four consecutive years. Katie, welcome and thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be on here. We've known each other. I was just checking before we started. 2012. Yeah, is that that long? Was wow. when we first met. Time flies. And that's when you were with Amoria Bond. Shout out to our friends at Amoria yeah, Bond. That's yeah. an extraordinary business. Your husband, Ian, is still the group MD there. He is, yeah. Fantastic. So say hi to Ian for I will. me. By the way, I interviewed Jordan Lawrence from PCN oh, Capital okay. just this morning. Too. He spoke very highly of Did you. Yeah. Oh, nice. It's a small world. It is. It is. I've done a bit of work with them in the past. Fantastic. So here's what we're going to talk about today. I want to learn about you being a hands-on biller, billing up to 600,000 euros per year while managing a team of 10, mm-hmm. and then also leaving a very stable recruitment position, a secure role at Amoria Bond, and then retraining in career coaching and setting up a brand new business, Eva Connections, which required you to develop totally new skills and you know in areas you had no knowledge of. And also being a mother of two young kids while still working full time and trying to manage multiple different priorities and stay sane. So those are all things that I'm excited to learn about. Before we dive into all that briefly on the pandemic, I don't want to spend too long on this because it's all most people are talking about, but clearly massive uncertainty that's creating. What's the message that you're giving out to your community of women leaders that you're connected to? Oh, well, funny you say that, actually, because I was just discussing with my business partner, Estelle, this morning or yesterday, how can we help? You know, How can we bring the community together? Because our business is, is very much a network of career women. We're just about to launch a pay it forward social media campaign where we shout out to lots of amazing women entrepreneurs who, you know, are in a very tough situation at the moment because where's their income coming from if they are entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, co-founders? A lot of it relies on going out to meet your clients, etc. So we want to give a big shout out to all of the people that we know and get them to shout out and, and really kind of elevate the skills of all of the women entrepreneurs within our, our community and beyond our community, um, just to kind of help raise each other's profiles and keep that camaraderie going whilst you know people are very anxious at this moment in time. I think, I guess, my mindset is very much of, 
we can't do anything about it. So we have to stay as positive as possible and we can only control what's going on in our own mind. So, you know, like you mentioned earlier, look at the look at the key things that uh, are going to help you move forward within your business. And for me also, it's quite nice to not go at a zillion miles an hour. Just take a step back and, you know, I've got two kids, so they're at home. Just restock and enjoy the family. And, and there's going to be a lot of lessons learned from this in terms of how corporates, you know, look after their staff and the whole working from home initiative. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, how it pans out. Of course, it's not a great situation at all, but all we can do is is see how we can help each other and, and gain as much positivity from it as possible. Absolutely. Well said. I, I agree 100%. And I love the fact that you're remembering to appreciate the opportunity to, you know, spend that time with your family, as well as you're focusing on supporting and helping everyone in your network. And I think that's really important that we just support and help each other and stay positive. As we were talking before we hit the record button, you can only focus on what you can control. And we, we can't control the pandemic, we can't control the economy. And so there's almost no point in overly worrying about it. We just need to focus on on those things we can control our own mindset and our yeah. own actions. Absolutely. Well, it all comes down to mindset, doesn't it? Totally. So while we're talking about being a mom and, and having a family, can you talk about like, how have you done it? Because it's, this is a challenge that many women face at some stage is being really successful in your career and wanting to have a family. How did you navigate that? It was really tough, actually, because, you know, for a long time, I didn't become a mother until I was in my late 30s. And for a long time, I didn't even think I wanted kids. I was just very focused on my career, doing really, really well, advancing, getting promoted, it just got better and better for me in terms of my career. But as you know, in recruitment, it's very long hours. The market I worked in was global. So I worked in the global power sector. So I was traveling quite a lot because we had clients over in the, in the US. We had uh, we went to all of the major global conferences. So of course, because I headed up that division, I went along to all of these different conferences. And then when I got pregnant with my daughter, Summer, so this is going back nearly five years ago, I did question, well, how am I going to how am I going to manage this? How am I going to make this work in terms of traveling and having a young baby at home? I went back to work six months after I had her and then it all started up again. And, you know, at some point it was relatively okay to manage, but I did need to leave at 5.30 in order to pick up my daughter, which, you know, it's kind of like finishing in the middle of the day when you finish at 5.30 particularly in recruitment sector. So that impacted and I felt that a little bit. So that was difficult. And then when I had my son, Leo, then I knew that, okay, I'm not sure how I'm going to manage this now because two kids under two in the job that I'm doing became really, really difficult. And, you know, I love the company. I love Amori Bond. I haven't got anything bad to say about them. But, you know, there was also, I think, a question mark on their side in terms of, well, how are you going to do the job with two kids and having the travel the job hasn't changed so I felt there was a little bit kind of inflexibility from that side slightly although I was allowed to do a lot more homeworking which was great but yeah it just got to the point where I just felt this, it was getting too much I had you know a very large team to manage and at that point we decided to part ways and very very amicably and I, you know I still do work with them currently to this day 
But yeah, then I went on a little bit of a journey in terms of, well, who am I? What's my identity? Where do I fit in the world? I'd done recruitment for, well, I've been doing recruitment for 19 years. It was pretty much all I knew from graduating and traveling. And then I decided to kind of look into doing some career coaching for women because I didn't come across a lot of women in terms of when we were recruiting women into roles because we worked in the power sector and it was very, very male dominated. Uh, I had a, a large woman team, however. And yeah, so I really wanted to focus on, well, how can I help other women progress in their careers? So I did some career coaching qualifications and, and went down that route. And then I got dragged back into doing a lot of recruitment in terms of training because a lot of companies who then found out I'd left Amoria wanted me to help them either set up new divisions or help train their staff. So I did that, which was fine and it was great. And then around seven or eight months into that, I met my business partner, Estelle. And yeah, we decided to set up, um, well, it was a long, long story short, but we decided to set up either connections because her background is HR. So she used to be the global head of HR for an IT company. Mine is all recruitment. So our skills were very complementary and we wanted to create a community for women in order to help them, whether they're looking for a new job, turning back into the work environment or wanting a complete change. And then from that, that's evolved into working B2B environment as well. So we still do work with organisations on gender diversity recruitment and mentoring. Yeah, long story short, I got there in the end in terms of, okay, what do I do now? And it's evolved into this new business, which still encompasses a lot of my skills. But you know, I have help. I have an au pair who's fantastic. So that gives me the flexibility to carry on working because you know I'm still ambitious. I still didn't lose that identity of okay, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom, you know, kudos to stay-at-home mums, they can do that, but it's definitely not the job for me. You end up figuring it out, but it did take me probably maybe two years to get to that point of, okay, this is it. Brilliant. And so it sounds like it was a process of evolution to get to the point you are now where you have kind of figured out how to juggle everything. But by the way, we're going to dive into Eva Connections and, and what you're doing now. I'm really keen to, to learn about that. Take me back to when you were still trying to work in a company and juggle everything. Like, What were you going through emotionally when all that? It sounds super demanding. So when I worked for Amoria still and, and juggling everything, yeah, very, very demanding. For me, the light bulb moment came when I was working with an external coach and we were talking about, okay, various different things in terms of executive coaching and, and, you know, taking me to the next level. And there was just something in me that was really kind of thinking, I'm not sure I can do this. And why am I still feeling this, this way? And the realization came when we really looked at uh, my values. And when I started in recruitment, my values were career advancement, adventure and career progression. And then after I had children, my values really changed to freedom, flexibility and autonomy. And this was where the disconnect for me came in. And I didn't realize it until I'd actually sat down and, and massively looked at my values. So, yeah, day to day, I'm going through the motions in terms of, OK, I have to still develop my team. I have to still travel. And I was still doing that. But I felt this feeling of being torn internally in terms of, well, this isn't working for me. And I didn't know why, you know, I had obviously my daughter was in childcare, she was there full time. And then, you know, Ian and I, we were very much split in terms of 50 50 kind of thing in terms of bringing up our kid, because 
it's a 50-50 relationship. I was a senior director within the organization. Ian was a senior director in the organization. So it wasn't like, okay, I could take a step back and and he took the, the front driver's seat. You know, we both didn't want that. We I still wanted to carry on in my career. But then, yeah, it got to the point when I became pregnant with Leo that it was, I knew then that it was probably time for me to think about doing something else that didn't involve all of the travel and managing the different teams in different locations. But yeah, it was a real struggle for me actually at that point because you kind of lose your identity a little bit. And, you know, in recruitment, the stats are very much 50-50 split across the whole industry in terms of male and female. But then when you get into management and senior management levels, it's around 10%, maybe not even that. So it's really, really low. The, the, the volume of women that drop off at management levels is quite stark. And I do think it is down to, you know, women go off and they, they have children. And, you know, what happens after that? A, a big, I think a big factor around that is, and, and not just within recruitment, but across the industry in general. But times are changing. There are more inclusive policies coming in that help support women along their career journey. I think the recruitment industry will certainly follow suit at some point as well. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing your journey. I think that a lot of people will relate to what you just shared, Katie. Fortunately, I know a lot of women running recruitment businesses, but I never stopped to really analyze. You're right, in terms of the overall recruitment industry, it's probably 50-50 in gender balance, but then um, in more senior positions within larger companies. It'd be interesting to find the stats for that uh, to see how that changes, because you're probably right, it does change. Um, the next milestone was you decided to start your own business, and that would give you more. You said your values were freedom, flexibility, autonomy, and you perceived that doing your own thing would give you that and also not require the same level of travel so that you could make everything work. But on the other hand, running your own business is not easy either, right? That's, you know, it's not like you were taking a, an easy option. How did you juggle starting up your own business with the, you still have all the same commitments that you had before, I think the main thing is around, you know, the freedom to choose your own hours. I wasn't at that point rushing, rushing, rushing in the morning to get the kids ready, to get them out, to get them to daycare. You know, I could pretty much go at my own pace. I had that mind space to think, okay, right, my day I can structure in exactly how I want to. And of course, you know, being an entrepreneur, you work probably longer hours, but you can work them around your own home commitments and you can set appointments when that suits you as opposed to when it suits the business. And also, you're not dragged into lots and lots and lots of meetings because when you're in a director level role, you go to so many meetings, you know, you have to be there, you're getting involved in lots and lots of different things, you're having to travel to different locations for these meetings internally, as well as having to go to client meetings. And initially, the business I started was career coaching. So a lot of the clients I had was all you know online so we did everything online at times that would suit me and my schedule so that worked really really well for me and and it still holds true you know the freedom the flexibility and the autonomy is still absolutely key for me in terms of what makes me happy 
doing what I'm doing. And I, I do think, you know, the whole nine to five is quite outdated. I think it's a little bit old fashioned. I do think companies are now having to change, particularly addressing the millennial what do you call them, people? <laughs> Generation. <laughs> That's the word I'm looking Generation, for. yep, I get you. The millennial species. Um, <laughs> you know, when you have to, they are the, the bulk of the workforce now and times are changing. So companies need to just kind of just think about, well, how engaged are people are they when they sit at a desk nine till five? You may get two hours of productivity out of them. However, if you let them work in the times that they're feel most energized and they can take breaks when they want to then you will get so much more out of those individuals and yeah you know so even now it's all around well what works for me and what makes me happy and that's my top priority and as long as that's working then I know my business will flourish well awesome I love it. And uh, we have a lot of the same values, which is probably why we both work for ourselves. Um, autonomy, freedom, flexibility, those are all definitely high on my list as well. My audience is recruiters, recruitment business owners, quite a lot of female entrepreneurs, as I said, and they're no doubt interested to know how you manage to build 600,000 euros while managing a large team because each one of those really could be a full-time job. So what is your secret there? Yeah, lots of hard work, basically. I've been in the industry for 19 years now, and every single position I've had has been Greenfield. So every role I started um, has been no clients, no candidates. From going back to when I first started in recruitment, I was doing high street recruitment. I worked for Pertemps, which is one of the largest independent recruitment companies in the UK. I was there to set up division for South Manchester. I did that. I managed and recruited a team. We then went to High Street and opened a High Street branch. And it was, you know, small fees in a certain location. But I was probably doing around 10 deals a month um, whilst managing a team. And at that point, I thought I need to do, I love recruitment, but I'm not really challenged anymore. I want to develop my skills in recruitment. So then moved into executive search. And that's when I joined MRI. And from there, I probably got the best training of my life. You know, it was phenomenal in terms of they sent me off to the US and all over to learn how to sell retained search. And I loved that. That was a real leap for me because I wanted to take my earnings from whatever I was earning into the six figure mark. Uh, and this is going back 14 years. I got trained. I really, you know, I took to it. I really believed in the whole retainer, you know, working to get paid up front as opposed to no cure, no fee. I really believe in the value of my service. So that for me was like, yeah, I'm ready to go. And then I started in the power sector. And this was a huge learning curve because I knew nothing about engineering. I knew nothing about the power sector. I knew nothing about turbines. So I really had to learn. And my philosophy for learning was speak to as many candidates as possible and get them to teach you about the, the industry sector. And at that point, you'll then have a really good candidate set of candidates that you can then spec out and sell into organizations, which was really what I used as my main business development strategy, most marketable candidate, MMC selling, high level. So I always went, you know, 100K plus uh, and always sold in at very high fees. So I was really strict with how I worked with clients and how I worked with candidates. And I think the key point for me was I followed the process. I didn't try to reinvent the wheel. I didn't think I knew it all. If someone was teaching me something, I would soak it all up because they knew better than me because they were the experts. 
to the point where 10 years later, then I'm the expert and, you know, I'm teaching my my team. But I never diversified from that process. And then I was headhunted to join Amoria Bond. And I really loved the directors. I really liked their vision. I went to join them. And, and I just said, just leave me alone. Leave me to it. Let me build the division. Don't get involved. And you'll be happy. <laughs> so... I did that and started with them and I was basically, yeah, started the power sector for them itself. And yeah, use that philosophy in terms of using the candidate to take to market because at that time it worked really, really well. I think obviously things have changed since then. And I was just getting on the phones and speaking to people, you know, there's no other way around it. I don't even think we had LinkedIn at that point. So LinkedIn is obviously the key thing, particularly when I worked at MRI, there was definitely no LinkedIn. So we would have lists that we'd get from a research company in India that would provide us with names to headhunt and we would then headhunt them. And then I would go and research all of the companies and do all of the market mapping and talk to these organizations and sell into the top person. So I would always speak to the main, main decision maker. I would try to avoid people that were further down the chain because they wouldn't necessarily be the right people to speak to. So my market mapping was really good. I was very diligent with market mapping and I got some great candidates that I would sell in. And because I worked the niche in power, I became very well known and it kind of just grew and grew and grew. And then Alamoria, I built my team and yeah, and that slowly, slowly grew. And, and I was quite structured in terms of which consultants would work what market so I developed a what we called the RDS structure which was the region discipline and sector so I would put everybody on a certain region a certain discipline and a certain sector and every time I added a new head to the team they would work then a complementary region discipline sector so that that so they could then share leads with each other and when you use that strategy you're following the process you're market mapping really well you're adding lots of data to the system in terms of the right data and I'm not a big fan of just numbers 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 for numbers sake Um, you know we were very driven on KPIs but I think the most amount of managers I put on the system was maybe 500 and from that it was a 600k 700k a year generating business because all of the managers I had on there were the right managers so I wasn't just adding data for data's sake and I really tried to instill that to my consultants don't just add data you're being a busy fool make sure it's the right data make sure you're market mapping correctly make sure that you're checking and qualifying the people that you're speaking to you're qualifying the um, the clients and the candidates you're following the process from a to z and then your ratios will be really good because You've done everything to minimise the event of a candidate not accepting a position. And of course, we were also selling retained search services. So we had guaranteed income. So we could predict quite well our income streams. And I guess I think the ratio for our business was 70% retained and 30% contingent. So we would always, if it was a brand new client, if they wouldn't go retained, we would do contingency but high level, but with a view that the next assignment would be retained because then you've seen how we work and how we operate. Long-winded answer, but very structured in terms of know your market, market map it really well, don't put dross on the system, qualify all your candidates, use different business development strategies as well as using your MMCs, use do job spotting and do all of the other business development activities. But the thing that worked extremely well for us was definitely the MMC selling for sure. Fantastic. And by the way, you you call it MMC, I call it MPC, but it's the same thing. Most 
most placeable candidate is what I call it. Thank you. That was a brilliant, brilliant <laughs> summary of Sorry what it takes <laughs> to no, not at all. There was so much there, which I, in fact, I think people want to go back and re-listen to that because you had a lot of great nuggets in there. Can we double click on the retainer selling? Because as you know, I'm a, I'm evangelical about retained search. Mm. The contingency model for me didn't work. And I realized that I just found it incredibly frustrating. You do everything right and deliver on what you committed to delivering, but the client can move the goalposts. They can pull the rug out from underneath you, the final you know stage or whatever. But a lot of recruiters have maybe a limiting belief around this and think clients won't agree to it or you know, whatever. What's the key to transitioning from a contingency model to a retained model? I know you could do a whole course on this. So what are the keys high level? Mm, I would say you would need to probably operate in some sort of niche sector where the skills that you're working with are quite in high demand. So for example, the roles that we worked were mid and senior level management. We didn't necessarily, we didn't compete with the the C-suite guys, like the Corn Ferries, um, Egon Zenders, we were more mid and senior level. So that piece in between. And I think some consultants have this idea of, well, I have to work for one of these massive, big, you know, search firms like an Egon Zender to be able to sell retained search. Well, no, because you're in a candidate-driven market and the skills are in high demand, then why shouldn't you be paid up front for the work that you're doing, because the work that you're doing is significant, you know, in terms of getting the role on right through to placement, it's not a small piece of work. So a lot of it is just really having that belief in terms of my time is precious, I don't want to waste it, because I know you're working with multiple other agencies. So why would I compete with them? When I have a really great candidate here, I only want to work exclusively. And it's getting that across to the client in the right way and educating the client ultimately, you know, because often recruiters, I find, don't challenge clients enough. They'll just take the job and go, yep, okay, we'll work it contingency at 15, 20% or whatever the rates are. But you're not then differentiating your service. You're not, you're just another recruiter. You're not anything special. You're not going to stick out in that client's mind. However, if you challenge them in a way where you're saying something like, you know, we don't tend to work, we don't tend to compete with other recruitment firms, we only work with our clients when they've exhausted all of their traditional methods of recruiting, they've not been able to find the right candidate for X, Y, Z reason, I'm a specialist within this market, and we only work with our clients when we can work on more of a strategic partner level, when you are happy to work with us on payment upfront basis or initially or a third a third a third this is our typical business model so i would suggest go and use all of the other recruiters if you can find candidates via that methodology you don't need to use us however when you get to the point where it's getting a little bit more critical to your business and you're in a little bit more of a situation that's giving you some level of pain then let's discuss how we can work together appropriately because often when you work in a contingency assignment how often is that then filled So you've got to look at your kind of success ratio if you are competing. How much better time would be spent in finding those other clients that appreciate the value and the service that you offer and the skills and the expertise you can bring and the quality and the caliber of candidates that may then add significant value to your business? 
So it's just really all in the pitch. It's how you deliver it. It's having that belief in yourself. And it's just being able to challenge the client because what are they going to say? You know, they're not going to start effing and jeffing at you and saying, what are you talking about? And we would never work in that way. They would respect you more for that. And then you would stand out when they get to that point of, okay, this is getting a little bit more critical now. We haven't found the right person for X, Y, Z reason. Our talent acquisition teams haven't found them or our internal recruitment. And I know that recruitment firms now, uh, you know, are, are competing against the internal talent teams and the internal recruitment teams. So it's more prevalent to sell search and senior level and executive than ever because their internal talent management teams and internal recruitment teams are going to be able to do it themselves. That's what they brought them in for, to save them money. Well said. And and that's great. I love that explanation, Katie. And it's clear what comes across is your mindset, your belief, your confidence. And that is key to getting the client's confidence as well. You talked about ratios. The average conversion of job order to placement across the industry is 19%. So that means that most recruiters are working for free 80% of the time. So think about how much wasted effort. It's horrifying. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And just that statistic alone should make people think, right, (laughs) I'm going to retrain. I'm going to start selling search. Um, But it is confidence, I think, at the end of the day. And, you know, if people's, uh, a lot of companies' recruitment strategies are to bring in rookies. Well, rookies are not going to be able to do that. You know, if they're bringing in graduates, they could do it, but how confident are they in that delivery of that if they've never done recruitment before? I think you need to cut your teeth a little bit, and I do think you need to just go down that route of, okay, this isn't working, now teach me how to do search. It definitely is just, I mean, I've been doing it for such a long time, It just it's natural to me. So it's easy for me to say, but if somebody's listening to this who is a rookie, they're thinking, well, okay, how do I do that? This person's got 18, 19 years years of experience. If you have the right mindset in terms of not wasting your time with job orders that are not going to get filled and stop kidding yourself, then all it comes down to is, is the training, learning how to pitch properly, and then having that confidence to deliver it regardless of whether you're a 21 year old grad to a 40 year old season absolutely do you know what katie i think it's not the rookies that have a problem with it because in fact i've got a client in spain and they only do retained search and they bring people in as trainees and they they start on the client on the candidate side doing research and they um develop them but because there's no option to sell contingency And that's all they've ever known. They just think it's normal. And that's what they ask the client for, right? The people that find it difficult are the experienced recruiters who've always done contingency and they're afraid to ask the client because they're worried they're going to lose business. And that is who has the biggest challenge kind of changing their mindset about it, I think. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, if you've only been taught how to do it one way, then you're only going to do it one way. But if you give them different options, then oftentimes people go for the easy option and go, no, I'll take the contingency and work with five other recruitment firms. <laughs> we can get CVs across. CVs across. Bye. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Let's move on because there's so, so much I want to cover with you, and we might need to say this is part one because you have so much value to um, to share. 
What was it like when you, you were leaving a stable role at Amoria Bond and you were setting up a new business in an area that you'd never really worked in before? And so that required you to develop new skills and new knowledge. And like, I mean, the learning curve must have been immense. What was that yeah. like? Yeah, and that's still going on, to be honest. We're constantly learning every day. And we've pivoted our business quite a lot from when we first started because we're, you know, we started off as a community for for women. And then we niched down into, well, we're a community for career women because why aren't we using our skills? As I said, my business partner has 20 years in HR, mine's 19 in recruitment. So why are we not using our skills in people development and recruitment and niche down into the sector so we did then we developed a membership community which is completely new to both of us so you know there's a whole learning curve with regards to that developing a website and getting that fit for purpose so people could join the community between us we've split our roles quite a bit in terms of our strengths so yeah Estelle deals with the kind of the operations and she's very tech savvy um, and deals with all of the you know getting all of that together and the, the the learning content whereas mine is very much on the business side finding the clients getting the attendees for events etc so our business is a mix of recruitment gender diversity recruitment mentoring platform and membership community well I know recruitment so that's fine I knew nothing about membership community neither did Asel and she built the mentoring platform because she has a real passion for it with her HR background. So in between, we've had to, you know, curate skills from various different areas, such as marketing. I know nothing about marketing. And it's been a big black hole for us. So having to try to find good marketing people that will help us with our getting our message out to this community of women we want to join our membership been a challenge and it still is a challenge but it's been a good challenge because you're learning something new all of the time so we're in this kind of growth mindset of okay never done this before how do we go about doing that and luckily we know a lot of people between us so we've been able to beg borrow and steal people's skills and ideas to help us you know form the business that we have today but yeah it's, it's not been easy <laughs> Talk about the EVA network. What services do you offer and how can people get involved in it? So on the membership side, it's a membership community for career women. And these are women, like I mentioned earlier, who are either looking for a new job, returning back to the work environment or who want a complete change. And when they join the community, there are two levels of um, membership. But when they join the community, they get access to each other. So there's the community peer-to-peer -peer support. They get access to the mentoring platform. So oftentimes women want to upskill in certain areas where we'll match them to a mentor. So currently we are looking for mentors and we have a lot of interest for people being mentors. We are concentrating around the STEM topic areas because these are where there are huge shortages of women. They also get access to the online masterclasses. So the masterclasses can range from anything from how to write a great CV to what does your LinkedIn profile say about you to how to overcome self-doubt, leadership skills, diversity. And within that, we either curate the content ourselves or we get an expert to do a masterclass for us. And that all sits within our knowledge hub. They get access to psychometric profiling and some events and workshops as well as different add-ons. So when you join, yeah, you it's an international community. So it's because it's online and all of the mentoring, it's a cloud-based platform. So all of the mentoring is done online too. Super happy with it. It's taken 18 months in development. 
and we just opened the doors in January. And now we have um, interest from lots of big corporate brands in terms of putting their women into our network as a corporate membership. So it's like an employee benefit. So we're in talks with some big brands on that side. And then as well as that, we sell diversity and inclusion recruitment, gender balance shortlists only retained. And then we also sell the mentoring platform to those organisations if they haven't already got a mentoring platform or their mentoring platform isn't really fit for purpose because what ours does, it has data analytics built into the back of it so you can then measure the success and the effectiveness of the mentoring relationship. So yeah, it's it's you know super interesting company that we've developed and built and yeah, we're really excited about just taking it, getting as many members on board and then getting the corporate clients on board as well. And we see that as a, a really nice link between the two because then the corporate companies can advertise their jobs for our network and for our knowledge hub. Our women can then apply for it and they can then use our women as a, an extra kind of sourcing tool, sourcing strategy. So rather than just using LinkedIn and all of the normal channels, they have our community of women to then source from. Wow, that sounds amazing. It has such potential. I mean, that's what I love about that is that the career coaching, I'm sure was um, fulfilling, but it's not scalable, is it? Because, you know, there's no. a limit to how many people you can help that way. Whereas this community, you know, could just get bigger and bigger and, and go international. So I wish you huge success with that. So listeners that want to find out more can go to Eva, E-V-A, evaconnections.com. Brilliant. Katie, is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have? I don't think so. Do you know who else recommend? I asked my LinkedIn network for recommendations of female entrepreneurs that I should interview. And John and Alex from Liquid, per well, formerly of Liquid Personnel, who right now have their Rise Investment Fund, gave me your name. Of course, I already knew you, but uh, how do you know those guys? Well, funny you asked that because I listened to your podcast with them on and connected with them. Oh, and then I had a, yeah, because I thought that's really interesting uh, that they're now investing in businesses. So I thought, hmm, maybe we could have a chat because not that we want investment yet because we are bootstrapping pretty much. But I thought, well, maybe we'll just have a, I'll just have a chat with them just to see, you know, what they can offer because we are bootstrapping and we're quite happy to do that but it depends if they have a good investment strategy then maybe we could look at that so I had a chat with Jonathan and he was asking me you know what I did and blah 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 and went through all of that and he was super impressed and you know we wanted to kind of take it forward a little bit more I've kind of put the brakes on it a bit because we're still a little bit unsure in terms of well, we could probably grow the business quite a lot through recruitment anyway in our recruitment fees. Do we need extra money? It would be nice to have some money now, but do we need that extra money and do we need want someone to take a big chunk of our business? We're not sure. Got it. That all makes total sense. Cool. All right. Well, listen, Katie, thank you so much for taking the time. 